You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. Everything that I learned in my uh background as a psychologist in cognitive science, I use it every day because we are dealing with human beings. And while technology changes uh, very fast, our brain doesn't change as fast as technologies. Hello, I'm Marek Pawlowski, founder of MEX, and that was Lada Golenko, director of experience research at Smartsheet and my guest on today's show. Now, that background in cognitive psychology that she mentions is really just one part of a remarkable career journey. I mean, I've had the chance to chat to some fascinating people on this podcast. I mean, it's, it's one of the real joys of making it for me. But Lada's path has been particularly intriguing. So these days, she applies her expertise in user research on the client side for Smartsheet, which is this rapidly growing work management platform. And that theme of working on productivity tools has been a big part of her work for years now. I mean, when we, she, we met, she was leading a team looking at Microsoft's mobile and communications ambitions. But she actually started working in Ukrainian prisons, conducting research into behavior change. Now, if there's one thing that I've learned from all of the wonderful people that I've had the chance to talk to on this show, it's that the more times someone's tree has branched, you know, someone's path that has taken an unexpected turn, the more likely it is that they're going to bring a unique dimension to the work that they do around user-centered design. So we talk about the client-side roles that she's had with big software companies like Microsoft and what could have been for Microsoft's mobile ambitions. Uh, we talk about her time agency side with uh, the likes of IBM Consulting and Artifact. Uh, and we also get to talking about conferences, which Lada has been involved with in lots of different ways over the years. So we've got a fair amount to talk about there. Now, I'll be back at the end. And of course, you can find show notes to accompany this episode uh, in the podcast section at mobileuserexperience.com if you want to see links to all of the things that we talk about. But now, here's my conversation with Lada Golenko. Hope you enjoy. Now, I'm casting my mind back and trying to remember what year it would have been you and I first met, which would have been when you were at the MEX conference in London. I'm thinking it could be over 10 years ago now. You were the user experience lead at Microsoft at the time. Am I, th- am I remembering that rightly? Was it really as long ago as that, over a decade ago? I think it was at this decade, yes. I think it was 2007, 2008. So what inspired you to come to MEX on that occasion? What were you working on at Microsoft that caused you to, to have an interest in our focus on mobile user experience at the time? So at the time, I was a UX research lead at Microsoft, a uh, team that became Skype for Business, used to be linked, Microsoft Office Communicator names changed. And we were working on a new strategic project, developing a new kind of mobile phone. That was before the iPhone era. It probably was 2007. And myself and a couple of other designers on the project, uh, on, on the team, 
uh, we were thinking about how to bring, uh, in, at that point in time, a new mobile device and a new mobile software to the business world to increase productivity and to make people work differently on the go. So that that's kind of started. And when I was looking for mobile conferences, I found Max. And Max to me was something different immediately that stood out. Unlike any other conferences I had been to by then. Yeah, see that that was a very interesting time, I guess. If that was around two thousand seven, two thousand and eight, yeah. then uh, it's a time which I suppose for a lot of people who have come into the industry at a slightly later stage, it's difficult to remember that there was a time pre iPhone and pre the mass market arrival of Android devices where the landscape was a very different place. Uh, now you're saying you were working on something around the idea of people being productive in the, the mobile environment. Was that specifically from a, a business focus for Microsoft? That was for business focus for Microsoft because uh, my team was part of the broader Microsoft Office team. And we were rethinking that the productivity of the future and the workplace of the future. So mobility was a huge part of uh, how we were thinking about it. Uh, actually, back then, about 15 years ago, when I started at Microsoft, the two big themes that we were looking at um, in, in my team and uh, Microsoft Office communication, but also in Office in general, is mobility as well as collaboration. Because if you think about uh, Microsoft, original Microsoft Office products, especially when they were designed uh, at the time, they were designed for individual consumption and for individual productivity and individual work. And back in uh, 2005, six, we realized that that was no longer a case, that the case was that people work together and they have to collaborate and they have to work on documents together. So that was one big uh, pivot we were trying to make the collaboration um, and teamwork, how to design for, for the teamwork. And the second big one was how to design for increasingly mobile world, which I think it was a huge thing. Uh, absolutely. And I guess for you as a user experience researcher at the time, that starts to throw up some immediate challenges of how do you start to research or change the research approach for a product which previously has been very much about individual users to something where actually it's as much about the opinions and views of multiple people within that usage pattern as it is about those one-off individuals. You know, Do you remember going through a series of challenges to understand how you were then going to adjust the user research process to reflect that. Uh, yes, and actually my first uh, kind of deep thinking about mobility happened a few years earlier. I think it was 2003 when I was still at IBM and I, uh, with a colleague of mine, I authored a paper on um, how to think about mobility from the perspective of the inter interaction design because specifically in the sense which tasks are truly mobile and which tasks we were um, almost like porting from the typical office environment and trying to kind of shoehorn them into the mobile world. So in that respect, what was really interesting for me when I uh, moved to Microsoft, I started thinking about the, the, the new mobile phone is to um, how to think about uh, the world as we knew that, the business world which and, and the software that was designed for desktop. Uh, how to think about it for a mobile desktop. And from the research perspective, we even had to rethink 
or even define uh, what mobility is in the context of work, in the context of productivity. And it took us a while, but we arrived at a framework that had kind of concentric circles of mobility, because uh, everyone can uh, think about mobility or mobile business scenarios for what we used to be called road warriors, right? People who are spend lots of time traveling, uh, they're away from everything, that that's a no-brainer scenario. But that's not, uh, or it was not the main scenario for uh, the majority of the people we were designing for. So how do we think about mobility and different mobile contexts? So we ended up with a framework that had those concentric circles of mobility. And the first one was you're mobile when you're simply away from your desk, in a meeting room, uh, you know, roaming the corridors, you're still in your office, but you don't have the setup you would normally have at your desk. You're having that, a, a slice of mobility. And the second circle was you are working away from your office. You might be working at home, you might be working in a cafe, in a library, again. So it's kind of the context changes. And even when you're sitting down, right, and when you're kind of uh, having a space, not necessarily walking or doing tasks on, uh, on kind of in truly mobile environment, it still changes your behaviors. So rethinking how our behaviors change and bringing cognitive science in it, because I'm a cognitive science by background, rethinking about what's happening uh, with human brain when we are doing uh, the same tasks in different contexts. That was what was driving our research and I, I have to say this was, was one of the most inspiring uh, period in my uh, research career because it truly made me think about how we do same things in different contexts and how much context matters to how we design. And were you finding that that context was changing for individual uh, or, or groups of users uh, throughout the time that they were interacting with the product in that this wasn't just about designing for different types of users where their behavior remains static, that actually those users could behave in very fluid ways across the lifetime of their relationship with the product. Exactly. And at that time, personas were starting to become really big in user research, for example. But when we started to think about uh, mobility, we actually started going away from the traditional persona framework because what we discovered is in the modern world, it's not who you are that matters or what you do. It's the context and increasingly so the context matters most. If you and I may have different roles, may have different tasks, but when we find ourselves in, in a similar context, you and I start doing things similarly because it's a context. So the context uh, became that was a primary or a very important um, shaper of uh, human behavior and human needs. So it's interesting that you say that that was one of the most inspiring projects that you've had a, a chance to work on in your career. Um, I, Microsoft itself has experienced, I guess, some challenges around uh, mobile, at least in delivering its own mobile platform, and seems to now have shifted its vision towards being a good product on other people's platforms. You know, when you were working on this, was 
the vision still very much around the idea that Microsoft would deliver a, a complete end-to-end platform where it wasn't just about the services. It was also about being able to provide the, the platform itself as part of an overarching experience. It was about everything, yes. And at that point, we were even exploring a, a, a potential for our own device because it, because of the completeness of the experience, right? And we felt that even if we would be doing, whether we were, would be doing or not be doing our own device, that we had to provide uh, guidance for how software would be de- designed or should be designed to accommodate the experience we were trying to create. Just going back to what you mentioned about your background in cognitive science, uh, how often do you come back to that still within your, your career now? Uh, every day. So my career started, my first professional job was in in a prison. I was an assistant psychologist in a prison doing longitudinal research on how uh, personality changes in long-term imprisonment. A few years later, I pivoted my career and started working in cross-cultural management training, where I was also doing longitudinal research on the effects of the training delivered and how uh, people's behavior changed based on the training they received. 25 years from the moment when I had my first professional job, I'm still pretty much doing very, uh, very similar research on how on product adoption, how uh, our customers adopt our products, and kind of at the at the wireframe level, it's still very much the same research as I was doing 25 years ago in the prison because, you know, research, I will always say that research is research is research. And no matter what subject you research on, the basics, the methodology, and uh, everything that I learned in my uh background as a psychologist in cognitive science, I use it every day because we are dealing with human beings. And while technology changes uh, very fast, our brain doesn't change as fast as technology. So there are basic rules of how brain works, how our attention works, how our motivation works, and emotions that are kind of universal. They lay the foundation for the universal universal principles of design. So it, it is my everyday everyday work, and I tap on that expertise every day. Well, I suppose it comes back to one of those fundamentals, which yeah. has a tendency to get forgotten. I think in in user experience. I mean, it, it surprises me still to this day how much work which is described as being user experience work actually uh, has not had direct contact with some kind of user research. And if that underpinning building block isn't there of a really deep understanding of how people are thinking and how people are relating to whatever it is you're researching or whatever context you're researching them in, then you know it's almost as if the, the structural foundations are missing from that exercise, it seems. Exactly. And sometimes when I uh, look at designs, uh, and that break the basic rules of, you know, how cognition work and how people's perception work. And I, I keep wondering is why? And I, I honestly think that uh, cognitive science uh, should be foundation for all design programs and that we need to teach designers how to think about how the brain works because it's so many, so many 
times I see people reinventing the wheel and reinventing in the wrong way while the wheel is there, the rules are there, and I think we can move so much faster, even faster than we do today, if uh, everyone in the field has a basic foundation and works off that foundation because these rules don't change. Do you think there are any elements of behavior which are starting to show signs of change? Uh, I take your point that I think there are sort of basic underpinnings and rules which remain concrete throughout. But when you think back now to uh, what you say is is a 25-year career in this area, are you starting to see signs that some of the digital tools that we've been using now for the last decade or so are starting to affect how people behave and think at a, I guess, a, a sort of slightly higher level up the stack of cognition? They do indeed, because the behavior itself gets affected. And I think uh, going back to the kind of the context theme is a lot of our behaviors are being affected by the context, right? And by, it's, it's, it's a continuous um, loop. We create new contexts and new contexts affect us. And because of that, we create new contexts and new contexts affect us. So in that regard, I think the biggest kind of behavioral change, I would say, of the last uh, at least 15 years is continuous partial attention, that we no longer have time or we no longer allow ourselves time to focus on one thing at a time or have that focus time. Multitasking is, is a must in the modern day. And yet again, we're changing behaviors, but multitasking itself, it's not something that our brain or every brain can process well, right? So yes, we're changing the context, the pace is, is faster, people start multitasking, we start paying continuous continuous partial attention to different things, which brings more stress, which brings more anxiety than um, than we used to have a few years ago, precisely because our brain does not always have time to catch up with our behaviors. Yeah, I mean, that must be something which you think about in your current role, I'm guessing, at Smartsheet, in that this is still very much in the area of productivity and whether or not those sort of behaviors now are something which is affecting the work you're doing today. Uh, indeed. Well, so it, at Smartsheet, we're solving an interesting uh, problem that Smartsheet is um, Smartsheet is a work management tool and no one knows what, what work management is. So uh, the simplest way for me to describe it is... I call it democratization of uh, project management. If you think about industry trends about 10 years ago, we're talking about democratization or consumerization of IT, right? When people are starting bringing their own devices to work and we, the the employees, started dictating what what software and devices we want to use uh, at work because there was so much choice and we knew what we wanted as opposed to what our IT wanted. So in the same way, as we do more work as and and the work becomes more collaborative. Um, we need new tools to support that collaboration, and we need new tools to figure out how how to manage that uh, the multiple processes we are involved in every day, and how to manage. So that's where the work collaboration. Uh, 
collaboration as a tool category becomes very prominent in in the business space. It's a new category of tools, but it's very quickly becoming very prominent because everyone is involved in managing their own work, right? If you think about, we have, there are two parts to our uh, work, especially when you talk about uh, knowledge workers or information workers. We create work, we create content or we do something, and we manage our workflow. So that's where Smartsheet comes in. So in that regard, it's the space is very interesting to me because, again, how do we design to support changing context? And the context is becoming richer and the context is becoming more complex. In that case, the context is uh, the, the collaboration, the richness of collaboration that people are experiencing every day at work, plus proliferation of multiple tools, plus proliferation of things that need to pay attention to. So how to support that increasingly uh, the, the context that jumps at you increasingly and it can become overwhelming. How to create a tool that takes that overwhelming away from people and allow people to focus on what they need to do uh, while helping them uh, deal with the, the kind of uh, management overhead. Yeah, I mean, it feels like one of the really big challenges facing not just the technology industry, but society as a whole, you know, how you increase overall productivity at a time when people are using a bunch of tools which are quite new to them which are still evolving and as you say are having to play a greater role in managing their own workflow than they have to before i mean at that intersection between improving productivity and dealing with some of these behavioral changes around things like continuous partial attention how does that affect how you approach that as a research challenge you know, do, do, you, do you have to adopt different strategies to companies that you've worked at before uh, or are you able to extrapolate and, and continue some of the methods that you've relied on in the past it's both so it's inter what's interesting for me is how we do research evolves over time, uh, not just because research questions are different or people's behaviors are different, but also because the way we do work and the way the product team work today is different from how we used to work in the early 2000s when I when I switched to UX and first started working UX, our own work is much more collaborative these days. So, like, 20 years ago, say, for example, we would do re researchers would do research, designers would do design, uh, we would uh, collaborate research and design, but then we would throw our findings or research to product management and engineers. It's almost like, it, well, it was a, the kind of waterfall approach, right? Research and design, we would do something and then we would uh, collaborate with product managers and engineers. The modern collaboration is very different within the product development teams and in a sense that increasingly our product managers and our engineers are being involved in research and design at the very early ages. So we do things together and rather than having a very clear owner, I own research and I do research, uh, what we have, the context is changing, is I lead research. But my other cross-functional partners are participants in that research. They do research. So my job as a researcher is no longer just to do the research myself. My job as a researcher 
has evolved to facilitate research happening within the organization and to facilitate others developing their own insights, not consuming the research insights that I would bring to them. How does that change the sort of skills that you've had to work on personally as a user researcher? Because it strikes me that, as you say, if you're, your job isn't just about delivering a body of research anymore, it's about partnering in a, a different way, I guess a richer way, with a lot of those other functions and, and disciplines within the, the team. Does that cause you to, to have to work on different skills yourself to think about um, different ways in which you can interact with those team members? Absolutely. You know, I have never articulated it to myself up until now, but I'm thinking that when I started as a researcher, it was all about my skills as a researcher. A good research was um, kind of in-depth research that I would do really well. It was about methods. It was about validity. It was about that kind of research subject matter expertise. And I, as a young researcher, was very proud that I could look back at my research and think, you know, it was fantastic. It was really well done. I, I kind of really nailed that methodology and, and brought stuff. Where I'm now... The primary skills that I'm using in my today's work is it's not so much about the researcher methodology. It's much more about the communication, the facilitation. And I'm a much more facilitator right now than the researcher. And it's a very different subset of skills because, again, back in the early career, it was more about presenting research outcomes and it were about persuading my teams to buy in into the ideas and recommendations that I would come up with. Right now it's it's much more about coaching others how to do things. It's coaching them how to think about different things. Coaching my engineers how to connect the dots, how to observe. And that that that's what myself and my team do a lot. It's that, that the coaching and facilitating role and set of skills that are, I would say, absolutely essential. They are absolutely essential for my team, and I would say they're absolutely essential for every researcher. And also the mindset that comes with that, because I always say that I can teach someone how to do research. I cannot teach someone how to have a mindset of inclusiveness. Well, I wonder if this is similar as well to the challenge which is being faced by a lot of people I speak to within the world of agencies uh, who are providing this, I guess, as a third-party supplier to other companies. And uh, more often than not, when people who have founded or are running agencies come on this podcast over the last couple of years that we've been doing it, more and more you hear about that challenge that they're going through of having to develop those coaching skills that you alluded to, of having to take on the role of educator as much as one of a deliverer of things for a client. It's as much about how they can help to educate and change and inform culture within the client's organization so that whatever more tangible deliverables uh, are created as part of that project actually end up having an effectiveness within that organization rather than them uh, being interpreted in a way that perhaps isn't as useful to the, the overall outcome. Yes, because you have to bring along, and again, because the modern, uh, the way we do work in the modern world, especially in the last 10 years, it's so collaborative. So that collaboration and being intertwined, and it's not just you do one thing, I do the other thing. It's more like, 
it's like a tango or it's a dance where I lead one part and you participate and then you lead another part and I participate. So similar with agencies and I have been on both sides as an in-house uh, professional who would hire agencies and then it was on agency side being hired by uh, by companies. You are you are right that this is a trend and I think Personally, that especially for research, for designers, you kind of work more with with the outcome. For research, getting to the insight, getting to that destination is as important, and in many cases, even more important than the destination itself. So, I I would never outsource really brainy work to an agency without them either being fully transparent or without us being involved in shaping those insights and doing research alongside. I It wasn't how I started back at Microsoft. Uh, some of the projects we were done were that just agency does the project, come up with fantastic insights, presentations, uh, throws away, throws over the wall to us, and then we have to, in-house people have to understand and then, then we have to evangelize that research, which was very difficult to do because if you don't know how you got to those insights, right? How can you evangelize research? How you can intelligently answer questions, interesting questions and difficult questions, if all you have is the insight, not how you got there. So in that regards, I think it's really important for the agencies to understand that and to even proactively, I think good agencies would proactively engage their uh, clients and meet them at the level that's uh, comfortable for the clients to be engaged. And when the clients want to be engaged more in research, it's not so much to watch over someone's shoulders. And it's not because we don't trust agencies. It's because we want that knowledge really happen within our organizations and we don't want to throw away the the outcomes of good research if we don't understand fully how it was developed. How did your time working for an agency inform the way you now work with them in your current role, which I guess would be described as, as client side? Do you find that a useful experience to go and spend some time working for, it was Artifact, I believe, you spent some time working for on the, the agency side? In, in my UX career, I've gone back and forth between agency work and in-house work or consulting and in-house because at IBM, I was an IBM consulting, then I switched to Microsoft in-house, then I was Artifact uh, consulting, then I'm Smartsheet in-house. And probably I will continue doing it for the rest of my career because to me, that's what makes me a hopefully good T-shaped researcher and UX professional because being in-house gives me the depth it's understanding how the sausage is made is sticking with the same product or with product development all the time. It, it gives you that gives me that nitty gritty of uh, how products have been uh, developed. And when I am a consultant, it gives me the breadth because I never know what my next project is going to be. And today I'm doing a project for healthcare. Tomorrow, tomorrow I'm doing a project for financial services and so on. So it helps me connect the dots and, and kind of see the world from a different perspective. So right now when I'm in-house, that having that observation and having that breadth of uh, knowledge what's going on 
out there in the world helps me to come up with new insights and helps me to think outside of the box in my current role. To give you a very specific example, so a few months after I joined Smartsheet, I was listening for um, a presentation from uh, my, my, my own team member, and he was recapping uh, customer visits of some of the customers, and he was talking about a particular use case of how a customer uses Smartsheet, and the customer was in a hospitality industry. And I couldn't get that I thought out of my mind that I've seen this pattern before. I've seen this pattern before. It reminds me of something that the use case he described it reminded me of something, but I couldn't quite pinpoint what it was. Until probably it was the third time when I heard his talk, I got a light bulb in my head. Oh, I know where I saw this pattern that he describes in the hospitality industry with a project manager uh, kind of resourcing uh, different things. It's exactly the same pattern I saw a few years ago in the middle of an operating room when I'm observing surgeries and the project manager in that hospitality um, project manager is has exactly the same kind of job and exactly the same kind of role, exactly the same, same kind of need as a circulating nurse has in the operating room. It's pretty wonderful when it's you can wonderful. draw on those uh, those tangents, connect those dots between different areas. And I said, and I wonder, I was like, oh, but it makes now it makes perfect sense. But if I were not at the agency, right? If I didn't do that variety, I would never ever be connect be able to connect those those potentially. So what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to teach my team and my broader product development team is to how to see those connections in the outside world. And part of the workshop that I do run on how to be insightful, not just knowledgeable, kind of getting to insights from data is an exercise or a couple of series of exercises of how to develop that skill. Is that something which informs how you go about hiring new members for your team as well, looking for that that way of thinking which allows people to make those tangential connections. Absolutely, and that's and that's actually the primary uh, lens I take the hiring for the mindset, uh, not for the skill set, because if someone has a curious mind and if someone has to uh, can bring those insight, give you a very simple example. I'm hiring right now for two positions, and my instructions for uh, someone's presentation for portfolio review is. Very loose and very simple in the sense that I say, look, storytelling is an essential skill of a researcher. So if you want to land this job is you have to tell the story of yourself in a way that makes it relevant to us. Yes, I have, I've read your generic resume. You qualify if you're being invited to have this conversation. Do you research about us and tell us what we need to know about you and your experience and your life? So connect those dots for us. And... Honestly, I hire or I don't hire based on, I can hire based on presentations alone because if the candidates understand that, that they have to create a relevant story, that they have to do research, that they have to connect those dots, then it's, then it's a brain and it's a person uh, that will thrive in our team and our environments. And even with the lack of research skills, I honestly don't care about that because I can easily teach skills. That sort of empathy, I guess, is is pretty fundamental to a role like this. 
in the sense that, firstly, if you're unable to empathise with those that you are researching or the subject matter that you are researching, then I think it's always going to be a struggle to get on a role like that. But similarly, you've also got to have the empathy for those that you are working with in the team that is then tasked with producing something off the results of that that research. So you, you've got to have that sort of two-way empathy, if you like, uh, as your your starting point. Um, the other thing which, which interests me about this, and I, I wanted to, to ask you more about Ludder, is uh, this um, idea of being able to pivot between different places and different backgrounds and different ideas. Because when I look back through your career, what I know of it so far, it, it does seem to be a story of multiple pivots at, at different points. And I'm wondering if there's one that you see as being particularly more significant than the others, or, or whether they all have a, a resonance for you in, in the way that you now think about your user research work. I think they have resonance um, for for good or bad. I never quite knew what I wanted in my life and I was more driven by curiosity and discovery, and let's see what happens. So the worst question that you can ever ask me is, where do you see yourself in five years? Uh, I always respond to the question as a deer in the headlight, like, I don't know, and honestly, I don't want to know. If I knew where I would like to see myself in five years, I would be bored, because I wouldn't have noticed so many opportunities that come in my life, right? And it's more like being driven uh, by discovering curiosity and things was interesting and noting those noticing those interesting opportunities and back to the question you asked the statement you made about empathy i think this is a really interesting thing that i would like to explore a little bit more i think that in the ux world and particularly in the user research world that we talk a lot about empathy to our customers yet we don't talk as much or we don't talk enough about the empathy to our teams, to our stakeholders, and designing our research uh, outcomes for them. And throughout my career is, because I, I pivoted multiple times, I think that's, that that helped me develop that empathy for, for others. And I think that having that, I actually appreciate, and I personally, I'm positively biased towards people who have who come to UX, specifically who come to research from from different careers, from different life, perspe- life perspectives, because I think they bring so so much more to the table. And uh, for example, say in my team, uh, one of my researchers uh, used to be a lawyer. Uh, another of my researchers, he used to be a structural engineer in his past life. The skills are perfectly transferable. Talk to me about attention to detail, right? Structural engineers probably have the best attention to detail in in this world because they're testing buildings that shouldn't fall, right? So those kind of skills that we bring to to the UX world are really important and how you, again, how you can connect the dots and how you're able to explain and tell your story um, and bring the relevant skills are very, very important. What about the variety of international background as well? Like when you think about your the team members that you work with now um, and also looking at your, your own career, I mean, you, you've had the opportunity to work uh, in uh, the Ukraine, in the UK, uh, in the US now as well. Do you find that being 
immersed in those different cultures, in, in those different working cultures, gives you a, a better foundation as a user researcher? It does. And the question I get asked often where I'm from, and the answer is, well, I was born in Ukraine, the accent is Russian, the passport is British, I live in Seattle. It's complicated. So... <laughs> Yes, and my, my partner is Australian, uh, and my child is American. So, uh, yes, it's uh, it's very complicated, but I think that having that perspective, and I was very lucky and fortunate in my life too, to be able to have those multiple perspectives. I think UX professionals, if they have a variety of different perspectives, be that international perspective or that be a different career perspective or something that's different, I think it makes you a better UX professional. It definitely makes you a better researcher because of that. Um, empathy, but also flexibility. And I think that all my background prepared me for thinking on my feet as a researcher. And I don't have preferred research methods. I, my rubric for what needs to be done is always goes like what the research questions, how much time we have, how much budget we have, because I can always do research. I can always bring insights in whatever circumstances we have. If I have two hours, I'll bring something in two hours, right? It won't be the most comprehensive, but I will find you a version of the answer, even if it's a very high level, in two hours, in one day, in something. And that the kind of the, my whole background and adaptation, being flexible and learning new things and be able to empathize with myself in new context, because, you know, going through two immigrations is not an easy thing, it's starting your life from scratch multiple times. Uh, that helps me empathize with my customers and it also helps me empathize with my uh, team members because ultimately we are almost like uh, speaking uh, different languages of our disciplines yet we're still uh, one family at the end of the day. One of the other things that I wanted to ask you about which I guess relates to this in in many ways is uh, the work that you do around conferences as well which clearly is something that we, we share an interest in. I mean there I guess one of the things that I've always loved about conferences is that there is that sense of being part of a much wider international community and the, the benefits that that brings. Um, is that something that you've always been involved with throughout your, your career? Or has that come uh, later that you've started to get involved with those professional organizations and, and with bringing together those kind of conferences around the world? I think I've been always involved in organizing something all my life when I was a child, I would just organize something uh, for my friends, for my classmates. But I think specifically about conferences, I was very fortunate to, when I was at IBM, for the first couple of years when I was at IBM, I was very fortunate to be a corporate ease of use group. Uh, that was a distributed IBM group of UX professionals. We were looking after processes and practices and tools for the entire IBM uh, UX community. And we were organizing those mini conferences where we didn't, there wasn't the word webinar back then in the year 2001, 2002, but we were organizing those coaching sessions and, and, and training sessions for other members of IBM UX community. And it really got me hooked onto that, that because of I like giving back to the community and being able, even as a young professional, UX professional, to give something back to my community to help facilitate the conversation happening and bring people together. I think that's where it started professionally. And then, quite honestly, I think Max was that the pivoting point for me because 
I had been involved in conferences before Max, but coming to Max and experiencing a completely different kind of conference that very intimate, very hands-on. And honestly, I felt like, oh, that was my kind of, I don't even call it conference. It was my kind of gathering. That's how I want to work. That's how I want to have knowledge. And since then, that idea of having a creating something where people can come together and learn and work. So at the moment, I um, so this year I do three conferences. One, I was invited to be programming director, one of the two programming directors for um, Interaction, the IXDA conference, because I go way back to XDA. I'm one of the co-founders of XDA. Another conference that I do is, for the last three years, I have been involved as a curator in um, the Enterprise Experience Conference produced by Rosenfeld Media and Lou Rosenfeld, but I also do customer conferences. We have our annual customer conferences, a customer conference where we, my team has helped create a very different kind of conference where we do customer research at scale and where we bring customers in to contribute to shaping our product. So that the, but, but I think the driving force uh, behind all of that is it creating that sense of community and I think the more virtual we become and the more virtual our world becomes online conversation distributed the more we need to have those pivotal moments when people do come together in, in real life and have it and those real life moments matter more than ever so how do we think about that the getting the most out of those moments is something that I'm thinking and quite honestly potentially I see I'm starting thinking about what do I do for the next 20 years of my career because I'm definitely not ready to retire for the next 20 years is some exploring something in, in the conference space is how to design how to treat the conference as a product or a service and how to design the right kind of conference for the right kind of goal that uh, the conference uh, clients or customers, people who want to have a conference, um, have in mind. So this conference design, we talk about product design, surface design. Conference design is something that's very top of my mind and something that I would like to explore and actually pick your brain on it, how you see it evolving in the future. It's a pretty interesting challenge, I think, and obviously something that I, I spend a reasonable amount of time thinking about. I guess one of the things you alluded to there, obviously understanding the the desires, the motivations of those involved, just like any element of designing for a group of people, you've really got to get deep into understanding what are those motivations that have got people there in the first place and then designing something accordingly. But I think that that's pretty fast evolving and it's something as well which even with the best quality of research where when you think that you've got the best understanding of the group that is coming along because there are so many different moving parts in that and potentially a number of different complementary but possibly conflicting motivations all coming together in the same place at the same time one of the great beauties but also the great challenges of conferences is that you can never quite predict 
how that's going to work out in the moment. Uh, I mean, I very much appreciate your kind comments about mechs, but uh, can you think of, of any other events that you've been to where you feel that that has worked, you know, really well in, in that particular moment in time? Because it's, you know, it, it's quite a, a focal point. You know, you think a conference sometimes takes many months to put together and then it all comes down to a couple of days where you get a group of people coming together in one place at one time. And sometimes you get great results. Sometimes you you don't get such good results. And I'm wondering if you've been able to pick out any sort of benchmarks, uh, any hallmarks of, of, of events that you've been to that have felt like they've really succeeded on that basis. I would pick for me personally, um, I would pick Women in Technology Regatta, WAT Regatta. It's a new kind of conference that we have in Seattle and now they have it in Vancouver and Amsterdam. The conference has been around for only three years. It was a third conference a couple of months ago. What's really important that what's really interesting about that that it's a conference that where you have the sense of community because they don't have talks. The entire conference and they started with one uh, one evening or half a day, uh, multiple locations, multiple tracks within the span of less than two years, they evolved into the whole week. And I think this year we had 250 speakers or 50 plus events, uh, separate, separate section, uh, sessions. So what's interesting about that, that you don't have individual speakers. Every session has a very particular format in the Women Technology Regatta. And the format is, I think it's 90 minute session or two hour session. Uh, it's a panel. Every session is a panel. You have a topic. Uh, you have about five panelists and the moderator. So there's really interesting discussion where panelists uh, talk about uh, their individual perspectives on on, on the particular topic. You hear them kind of building off each other. Then it's a Q&A from the audience to the panel. And then the last 45 minutes of the session, 45 or 30 minutes of the session is... Uh, the audience discussing the topic for themselves, literally like move the chair around, form groups of no more than five people and provide your own perspective on the topic. So that the collaboration that happens on stage, the collaboration that happens in the audience and that connectedness where it's not someone preaching at us, it's having that honest and open conversation. That what stood out to me and I was very fortunate and privileged to be part of uh, that conference as a speaker this year because I attended it for the first two years as an attendee and I absolutely loved it. And when I got invited as a speaker this year, it was, yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm so glad. I'm fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it because even the topics that uh, we discussed in that, that conference in that format, they're topics you would never ever discuss in a traditional conference from stage because the, the panel I participated in was how to get back on track after uh, career hiccups. How do you recover after being laid off? How do you recover after being fired? Have you ever been in a conference that would discuss those things openly? No, and you cannot put a speaker on stage to talk about things. It has to be community conversation. So to me, those conferences bring together the real topics, that things that people want to talk about but don't, the breaking the taboos kind of conferences, I think that the conferences are most memorable. And that's why like, that's why the Max was memorable conference to me because at that moment in time and at that period, you almost like broke a taboo or the format of you have a speaker who tells you what to do. 
and we were creating that knowledge together and we were working with people who were potentially our you know competitors yes we had to walk the line but at the same time we're still in it together yes we're competitors because of our employees are competitors but we're still ux discipline and we come together and one and we're helping solve human problems so we don't compete in that yeah that, that sounds like a, a very interesting format that you're referring to with the, the women in technology conference and uh, i think for, for me, at least, that has always been one of the the indicators that there's a path to a successful event is when you can see that the most amount of people who are present at that event are able to give their best contribution. Uh, because having now myself organized you know, quite a few conferences over the years, you can get the most interesting and engaging informed speakers and put them on a stage and it, it provides a wonderful uh, event and it, it informs people and it gets people inspired uh, but always the sum of the knowledge which is tied up in the audience is going to be greater than one person themselves can share in a single lecture style presentation so if you can find ways to get all of that untapped knowledge somehow released from the audience and get people sharing it and get people collaborating at the same time then i think that that always leads to to a positive outcome um so it's, it's good to see that going on at different events around the world and it's the same active participation whether you do conference or you're actively participating in research when you're when you're not a researcher it's exactly to me again underlying we're connecting the dots of our conversation it's exactly why i believe that we as researchers we absolutely need to in, engage our teams in doing research, being those active participants, just like we talked about, about active participation in the conference and mining the knowledge of attendees, not just the speakers, right? Absolutely. Um, now, I'm not going to ask you uh, to finish up here, Lada, with um, telling me about where you hope you'll be in the next five years, because you've already <laughs> <laughs> made it clear that, that, is, that is not a good question to ask. Um, but it sounds like you, you get quite a lot of inspiration from participating at, at conferences. But I am kind of curious about um, whether you think that's something which will remain into the future or whether there are other sources of inspiration which are emerging for you that when you think sort of five years hence, you feel like might be a, a bigger part of the mix for how you yourself stay inspired and informed and educated. Uh, obviously, we're talking on a podcast. I'm wondering if, if podcasts are starting to form a part of that for you or if there are other things that you do in your daily practice to keep your own sort of source of ideas and inspirations fresh i do want to design a new kind of conference in the next five years and i'll talk to you about it separately because i do want to pick your brain because but i feel i feel there's a pressing need and an empty space for a new kind of conference that's that needs to support the way we work that needs to support that collaborative cross-functional intertwined way we work that no conference or no events i i am familiar with or even i've heard of supports that work i want to create a conference where i can bring my entire product team together it's not ux for ux it's not product management for product managers it's not technology technological conference for engineers it should be a conference for us as a team and other where we can come as cross-functional teams and where we can 
discuss things that are relevant to all of us and help each other get that, get that knowledge, build those relationships and build those connections within our team and also with other teams from different companies who face similar challenges and who want to become better as a team. Because I think that the biggest competitive advantage of today is when we say people, yes, it's true, but it's not individual talent, it's group talent. And Smartsheet uh, was a big eye-opening in that respect, how company culture can help shape that group talent, that group team talent, because we're talented as individuals, but we're so much more as as a team, as a very well-functioning team who of people who build off each other and build things together. So I think there's definitely a space for creating a conference or a gathering like that. Well, it sounds like an inspiring prospect, and uh, I will very much look forward to staying in touch on that and, and hearing how the plans develop. But look, like we've come to the end of our time for this conversation. I guess one of the hallmarks of having such an eclectic and interesting guru as yours is we've probably only talked about half as much as we, we could have done. Uh, but I do appreciate you taking the time, and uh, I hope you'll stay in touch and perhaps come back on the show in the future and let us know how it's going and, and stay in touch with the MEX community. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. never fails to surprise me you know all of these twists and turns in someone's career uh, even when it's someone like Lada who I met over a decade ago when you actually sit down to talk for an hour or so you always uncover things that you didn't know before so I hope you enjoyed listening to our chat uh, and if you did you know, could I ask you a couple of favors firstly have a think about who you know who might also enjoy listening to this Oh, maybe it's someone on your team. Maybe it's someone that you met at a conference. Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's family. We're getting new listeners every day, uh, but it's particularly great when they come through these kind of personal recommendations to get people involved in the MEX community. Uh, and secondly, I want to try and expand my own podcast playlist. So if you could, drop me an email with the name of another podcast that you enjoy and you think that I might like listening to as well. Uh, and don't feel like this has to be limited to design either. I mean, my current podcast listening ranges from Meet the Farmer podcast to the Adam Buxton podcast. So eclectic is good. Um, but if you've got a recommendation, do drop me a line. You can reach me by email and that is designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. I'm going to be back soon with another episode. But for now, thanks for listening. Goodbye.